thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. are now in chapter 7, which is the last chapter that deals with the sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus. And tonight we're going to be focusing on the guilt offering, but also on more details on how priests are to behave and how to actually perform the sacrifice. So let's uh, begin with verses 1 through 10 of that chapter. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown on the altar round about, and all its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the appendage of the liver, which he shall take away with the kidneys, the priest. The priest shall burn them on the altar as an offering by fire to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in the holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering which he has offered. And every cereal offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every cereal offering mixed with oil or dry shall be for all the sons of Aaron, one as well as another. So, again, you notice the focus on holiness. It is most holy, we hear in the, in the first verse. And then, a little later... After all the details are given, uh, the Lord instructs them that they must eat it in a holy place. Um, and that only the priests will eat of it. And there is a portion of that offering that goes to the priests. The, um, let's let's uh, talk a little bit about the, some of the specific details, because I know we have not done m- much of that during this study, um, you notice, for instance, that uh, the Lord is specifying that the fat will be offered, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the appendage of the liver, which he shall take away with the kidneys. All these are offered. Uh, We can have sort of almost like a negative reaction to this, because we might be thinking in terms of health. Right? 
Well, in terms of health, you know you don't want to eat a lot of fat. And none of us, not a lot of us do eat kidneys, right? So it isn't part of our food regimen here in the United States. But if you go back to a nomadic society, or if you go back to a society where you have a lot of harsh physical work, then you know that fat is highly prized. You actually need quite a bit of it. So what is being offered here isn't the part of the animal that you would rather get rid of. It is the part of the animal that is most worthy of keeping. The other thing that is being offered, so here I'm talking about the fat. Now the kidneys, the reason why the kidneys are being offered is because for ancient civilization, and that sounds strange to our ears, the seat of intelligence isn't the brain. It's the kidneys. Chalk it to poor understanding of human anatomy. But it was more thought of it down here than up there. And um, if you notice, for instance, uh, oftentimes we'll say something like, my heart tells me. Well, the heart tells us nothing other than I'm beating. That's what it usually does. But we still speak this way, which can sound odd to someone who's not accustomed to that kind of language. Right? Because really, everything is actually processed through our brain. So God is asking them to offer the kidneys as well, because the kidneys is the seat of intelligence for humans, not for the animals. So what is then being offered? It's like offering the brain. Right? One of the reasons why we have a little of um, you know a really uh, strong reaction to the idea of eating a brain, a sheep brain, for instance. We, have a, we tend to have a very strong reaction to eating a sheep brain, although, in fact, it, 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 tastes, it tastes very good, especially with lemon, um, for those of you who actually had it. Right? How many of you have a- eaten brain? Let's see. Okay, quite a few here have had brain. So you know it's actually good, right? I mean, it could be greasy, but it's, it could be also good, right? So... For, for, yes, yes, with Ara, I agree, but let's not get into the, the culinary detail, especially with still in Lent. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, speaking of Lent, last, last week after Bible study, guess what the whole conversation was driving back home in the car while there was a lingering smell of freshly baked bread that my wife had prepared for a friend of ours who just had a baby. Guess what the whole conversation was about? Food and preparation of food. God has a sense of humor. Yeah, leaves the smell and the hearing of the food, but you taste none of it. So, the, the idea, the reason why we react to a brain is because we tend to, be, to identify more with the notion of a brain than with anything else. Right? So, when you burn the kidneys, you're, it helps you focus on the fact that this animal is representing you. So... We can be tempted to think of it, as I've heard some say, that, well, you're burning a whole animal. Let's say it's a Holocaust offering. The whole animal is burned. Well, it's a waste. Well, yes, it is. It's a very good observation. It's a waste. Think about that. It's a waste. Yeah? And then ask yourself, why? Why are we wasting a whole animal, burning it on, on the fire? Why? 
Why are we making this offering? Well, because of sin. Because of sin. Sin is causing this waste. Okay? Well, guess what? In human wisdom, we also know that things work the other way. Right? What do we say about too much waste? What do we call it? So if you see, for instance, a restaurant throwing food, freshly baked food this day, tomorrow they're throwing it all away. What do you say? It's sinful. Isn't that interesting? And then enter the vernacular, the language of every day, that this waste is actually sinful. Well, there is a really good reason for it. Yeah. You understand? So that should compel us to remember that we live in wasteland. We live in wasteland. Will things be wasted? Yes. They will be wasted. Will things be squandered? Yes. They'll be squandered. Yeah? Therefore, and it's a fine line. This is a fine line, but it's an important one. Our we can be so intent on saving the environment, which is a good thing. We must be good stewards of what God gave us. But we be so intent on saving the environment that we can become Pelagians, meaning denying original sin. Thinking that somehow, with good order and good organization and good discipline, we can get to a state where we waste absolutely nothing. But the truth of the matter is, you, yes, you need order, you need discipline, you need organization, but most of all, you need grace to fuel all three. Yeah? So it's the order of grace that brings bounty. And the last thing I'll point out in the context, in, in connection with this, with this topic, is that when we, when we will get to the last chapter in Leviticus, which is the harshest chapter in the book, where God gives them blessings and curses, you will notice that bounty is related to blessings and waste is related to curses. Hence, there is another element that enters into the picture. Being exiled, especially if you have a sense of being exiled in your own country, living in a society where things are wasted, living with anxiety when nothing material should cause you to be anxious, are all signs of God's wrath. So any time anyone says, well, God is not present, God is not taking action, what is God doing? God is doing. I don't know if I pointed that out to you, but four years ago, when Sony, the corporation, had supported that movie um, where they entertain outright lies about Opus Dei. What's it called again now? The what? Yeah, the Da Vinci Code, right? And, the, and Opus Dei had, wrote, had written a letter to Sony asking Sony to simply put a note that this is fictional at the beginning of the movie. Just say, this is a fictional piece. That's all they wanted. And Sony refused. 
They stuck with it. They did not want to put that on. Right? And four years ago, in one of the Bible studies, a couple of them, I stated that when a power stands up against the Lord and asserts themselves in this way, which is the way of the beast of the book of Revelation, right? then they are calling for their own destruction. Now, that was four, four years ago. And I remember that, and I, and I still I know Sony is around. So I just checked out on their status. And in that four years, Sony lost $6 billion. And they're downsizing. God is very active. The thing that we have to learn to do is to think and live biblically. Think and live covenantally. When we start to live a covenantal life, knowing that God is in charge, anxiety recedes. You then realize the only one you're really dealing with is God. Not the president. Not the cardinals, not the bishop, not whomever is right now pushing some hot button you have. It's none of them. The only one you're contending with is God. And then that hopefully will steer your heart to reread that passage where Jacob contended with an angel all night. I shouldn't be standing here. Those cookies are fresh. <laughs> Let me move away. Jacob contended with the angel all night, and there was no one else. There was the angel and Jacob. And he contended with him, meaning he fought him. That was placed to tell us that the realistic journey of faith is one of combat. If you really think about it, if you're honest with yourselves, do you truly expect to change without a fight? If you can change without a fight, then you're sent to us. Little child Jesus. Okay? You can sort of take that fast track and then just move along, being completely obedient to God's calling. St. John of the Cross, right? Miriam of Egypt, and uh, this uh, wonderful saint from Africa who was, um, who was uh, sold and, as a slave and, and, even by, and, and abused even by Christians, and then she became a, a nun and is now a saint. You, you can, God plants those beautiful flowers on our, in, in, in the world just to tell us, right? St. Joseph, Our Lady. But most of us are unfortunately not of that stripe. We're more of the prodigal son or the older brother. We fit more in that picture. Well, the, 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 the son, the, the older son in that, in that parable contended with his father. He wasn't happy when the son came back. You understand? If you are honest with God and you are Fighting him, God appreciates that. He doesn't kick you out. He doesn't spurn you. Because he knows the struggle. But the thing that he spurns is when you turn your back and you give him the cold shoulder. I don't understand why, but Lord, you're in charge. Whatever you say, I'll do it. 
That's being dead. That's treating your father like a, like a master. An honest faith contends with God. Saint Mary, Saint Martha. Jesus let um, Lazarus sit there for four days. He knew he's going to die. He waited for him to die, and he waited three more days before he went. Martha and Mary, they had to go through the pain for all these days. And when they showed up, when he showed up, they didn't just say, Oh Lord, you're here. Why? Why? You understand? It's a spiritual battle that you are going to enter into, into it with God facing you. And the only thing you need to keep your eyes on is God's wrath and God's mercy. And that's all. Fear God's wrath. And plead and trust His mercy. Do those two things and you're now contending with Him. You are truly living a life of faith. That's the heart of a sacrifice. That's why these things were burned. Because it's going to cost you. To live a life of faith, it's going to cost you. More than you think, and in more than one way. And God will bring you low before He exalts you. Expect it. Shouldn't be surprised by it. That's the way. He needs to break our pride. He needs to break our riches, the things that we are unwilling to sacrifice. The things that we're holding on because we want to hold on to them. Because we don't trust God enough to believe that He is willing to give us these and then way more. He has to break all that so we enter into a filial relationship with Him and then He builds us back up. That's the resurrection. Yeah? That's why that sacrifice is wasteful. That's why the best parts are offered. Because God expects the best. Why? Think about that for a second. God expects the best. What does that mean? Why does God expect the best? Because the best is usually what we tend to be most attached to. Because our best, because frankly, the distance between our best and our worst isn't that big. On our own, we're not that wonderful. None of our good thoughts is truly good. Why do you call me good, said Jesus? Only God is good, right? And none of our evil thoughts is purely evil, right? So we're in that shade of gray. So our best isn't impressive, but it's usually the stuff that we hold most onto. Let me throw some examples at you. You're going to understand what I'm trying to get at. Suppose tomorrow God decided that the United States of America is going to become a Muslim country. Here we go. God forbid. God forbid. But don't say that, please. Right? See what I'm saying? A obedient and ready heart would say, Lord, let that cup pass by me, 
but not my will, your will. Because I don't understand everything, I don't know everything, and my measurement is really small. Yeah? Okay, let me give you another example. Your daughter comes home and she's bringing with her a Taliban. She fell in love with the Taliban. Yeah? God's ways can be truly unscrutable now. Yeah? He will drive us, He will take us to a point of no understanding. If God is pulling you to a point where you don't understand, are you still going to stick around? The question was put to Peter and the other fellows. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, which is already a shocker, and drink His blood. Now forget the natural reaction. You've been studying Leviticus for a while. What is God repeating over and over again? You don't eat something with the blood. The blood you sprinkle to the altar. You don't drink the blood. You don't drink the blood. You don't drink the blood. That was the law. That's the law given to you forever. Forever, he said. And here comes Jesus. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. What is that? That's a complete short circuit. That is a brain freeze. A real one. That is, we're rebooting. Right? My operating system just crashed. And let me pick up my, the pieces first. That's when they left him. His disciples left him. John chapter 6, verse 66. They left him. As a Jew, as a reasonable Jew, as a only reasonable Jew, you would leave him. He can't be from God. He's talking... He's denying the whole law of Moses. How could we even follow him? Do you get it? Those are pious Jews. They've been living the faith. And he tells them to drink blood when the law told them not to drink blood? And he insisted on it? He must be crazy. Hmm? Forget the fact that he did miracles and raised the dead and did all these other things, right? It doesn't fit my understanding, therefore it must be wrong. That's lurking for all of us. God will have to deconstruct those things to show us His mercy. He has to take us beyond our understanding. That's why Jesus said, follow me, I will lead you to the truth, the truth will set you free. In this order, you follow first. Follow. Brings us back straight to the sacrifice. Sacrificing is all about following. You don't obey. And you don't humble yourself. And you do not follow. And you do not show that you love God unless you're sacrificing. That's it. That's the bottom line. And you're sacrificing something that is really meaningful for you. Something that that you hold dear to your heart. That's what you have to sacrifice. If you don't do any of those things, don't expect God's graces. He won't give them to you. Oh, He will not let you go. He will keep up with you and He will give you what you need to keep on going, but you're not going to grow in the faith unless you begin to sacrifice. And then remember what I told you before. This does not mean go find a place where you can be shot, 
We're always thinking in, in, in those grand things. No, 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 no. It's the small things. It's the things that annoy you. Those, what you have, those are the ones you need to sacrifice. Mm-hmm. It's too hot. It's hot. Bite your tongue. Say a prayer. It's too cold. Bite your tongue. Say a prayer. The food that your wife prepared for you doesn't have salt. Bite your tongue. Say a prayer. Yeah? That, those are the things he's waiting for. That's what the sacrifice is supposed to teach the Jews. That's what those sacrifices are supposed to teach us. Going to confession is a sacrifice. You have to humble yourself. Yeah? Saying a rosary is a sacrifice. For some more than others. If your prayer is dry, you get absolutely nothing out of it. You're getting confused or you're getting not confused. You're getting distracted and you say it and you have no idea what you said and it feels a waste of time and you got nothing out of it. Yeah, you got nothing. So therefore, it was a complete sacrifice. You got nothing. And it's a wonderful school of faith because you don't even know if... Somebody heard you. You don't even know if Our Lady was pleased with this rosary. You don't even know if it had any effect. You know nothing. You're in the dark. You felt nothing. It wasn't pleasant. You don't know if something came out of it. You have no idea what happened after you said it. So what did you say? It. If you can't say, I said it because it's a sacrifice, then why did you say it? I hope you're not saying the rosary because somebody said you have to say the rosary. I hope you're not being an auto-Catholic, you know, automatic mode. Go to Mass, say the rosary, go to confession, do those things, but never ever think about what that means and what it... What it you, can, you can do all these things, right? Somebody can go to Mass every week, go to confession every week, say the rosary every day, do all these things and end up in hell. If you're doing them externally... If you're doing them because you're supposed to do them like an automaton, is that what God wants? This is why that sacrifice is important. Yeah? Now let's look at it from the priest's side. As I said last time, it was very important in that ministry of reconciliation. This is what that sacrifice is. You committed a guilt. You have a guilt on you. You're coming to the priest to make atonement for that guilt. You have told nobody, nobody knows you did this. You could have not offered that sacrifice. You chose to. Why? Because you have this unblemished sheep that is three years old, and you just want to get rid of it. No, because you have a heavy heart. Yeah? You come over, and you're going to offer that sacrifice. So to the priest, obviously there is always something genuine in this because why are you coming? It'd be like somebody going to confession for bragging rights. It can happen, it's true. But that's why the priest has to, right? I mean, imagine this. You know, I just want to get into the book of World of Guinness for the most number of confessions somebody went to. I don't know if that category exists, but maybe we shouldn't say it out loud. Somebody might end up creating it. You see my point? Usually you don't do that. You go to confession because you are being genuine about why you're going to confession. 
Nevertheless, the priest has to assert your, what? Repentance. You know that story I told you before, the guy who went to the priest and confessed that he stole a pig. So the priest told him, have you returned the pig? Well, I can't, I ate it. So, well, are you willing to give restitution for it? You have to pay for it. Yes, how much? Give $50, that'll be good. Next week, forgive me, Father, if I'm saying yes. Uh, I mean, weeks is my last confession. Yes, my son, I stole a pig. Weren't you here last week? Yes. Did, did I tell you to make a, a, a restitution? Well, yeah, you did, Father. You told me to give 50. So I went over there, gave him 100, and sold another one. Not genuine repentance, right? Not genuine repentance. So even back then, he, you know, if, if there's a Jew that show up every week, the, the priest has to wonder what's going on. But back then, they didn't have the means to even solve these problems. These habitual sins, let's just say. Right? Now, in practice though, that kind of reparation is expensive. You have to spend money. Yeah? You have to spend money. It's going to cost you. It's a real sacrifice. What do you think happened in the history of Israel? Or maybe I should say, what do you think happened in the history of the Catholic Church? How many people go to confession on a regular basis? And I don't mean once a year when I say regular. How many actually go at least once a month? Yeah? And how many go every week? Which is what we ought to be doing. Because our soul needs it. We need that kind of influx of grace in our soul that comes from reconciliation with the Lord we need to hear we're forgiven we need to, so we can trust in Him more and more. It's a necessity. It's not a luxury. Confession is not a luxury. And here's the funny thing. If you ask anybody, if you heard somebody say, yeah, um, I took a shower last year around Easter. I'm getting ready to, to take my yearly shower. Or, eh, I take a shower once a month. That's about it. It's enough. I don't, have, I don't need more than that. I'm clean. I'm clean. I'm good. That's your body. Dust that will go to dust. Well, what about your soul? Well, I'm a good person. I'm good. Do you understand? Yeah. Same issue back then. You're going to have to bring that lamb. It's expensive. What do you think happened? Hear the word of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 10 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Who's he talking to? Jerusalem. He's calling Jerusalem Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Jerusalem. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the, fat, and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Yeah, it's like, you know, 
70% or 60%, whatever percentage of Catholics go to church every Sunday and are contracepting? Yeah? Okay. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Morality is inseparable from liturgy. Yeah? The fruit of liturgy is morality. The fruit of your spiritual life if you're wondering, how am I doing in my prayer life? Ask people, how are you acting? That's how you know. That is the, this is the fruit of that. It's not how you feel. It's not whether you're having ecstasies, you had a good moment when you prayed, or when you had consolation, or wonderful, bright ideas. None of that matters. I mean, it's good, but it doesn't matter. What matters is, have you, are you clamping down on that temper? Are you trying? Are you smiling when you don't feel like smiling? Are you trying to be attentive to the needs of others, even when you are in pain? Are you trying to listen more than talking? Genuinely listen to what the sufferings of others is in the conversation. Are you asking God every, every step of the way to be with you, to help you? Are you relying on Him? Are you humbling yourself? Those are the things that God wants to see in us. This is the interior life I'm talking about. Not to take anything from what you do outwardly. Yeah. So the sacrifice that is being offered outwardly is a sign of your in, in, uh, interior what? What do you bring to confession? What is the one thing you bring to confession? Contrition. Your contrition. That's the matter of that, of that sacrament. The form is the words of ab- uh, absolution that the priest recites. And I absolve you. Not I forgive you. I absolve you. But if you're not bringing contrition, yeah, contrition is what you have to bring. Well, how do you bring contrition? Your heart has to be softened. How's your heart softened? By doing sacrifices. Because we cannot soften our hearts. Only God can. Only the Holy Spirit can soften our hearts. But we have to show the Holy Spirit we're serious. So we do little things here and there. A bit here, a bit there. Whatever we can. We do those things. We do those sacrifices. So the whole point I'm trying to you know, uh, stress here is that the entire Levitical sacrificial system has become the interior life in our Catholic faith. The demands of that sacrificial system were never taken away. That when we, when we commit a sin, we must confess it. We must offer sacrifice. That has never been taken away. Jesus, on his death on the cross, unlike what the Protestants say, did not take that away from us. He didn't take away our ability to offer sacrifice. He made it possible for our sacrifice to become meaningful before God the Father. He made it possible so our sacrifice may become redemptive. Yeah? I think I've told you the story of Father Labaki. His mother, just amazing. 
he told her when he was young that he wanted to become a priest. Do you know what her answer was? The only thing she told him. Okay. I'll make sacrifices. That was it. I'll make sacrifices. And she took a jar and set it aside. And every time she made a sacrifice for him, for his priesthood, she took a grain of wheat and put it in that jar. And when he celebrated his first Mass, that host came from that jar. And then she told him, the day I move my room from down here to up there, I shall continue to pray that you may not err. This is not an educated woman. This is not somebody who went to university. But she lived the faith. And because of that, God gave her that interior illumination that he wishes to give all of us. Like St. Peter said, no longer do you need teachers. For God himself will teach you. And what blocks, the, road, the thing that blocks our growth in virtue and our growth in the faith is our unwillingness to offer sacrifices. Is our unwillingness to humble ourselves and recognize and recognize that we need sacrifices. That there is no going to heaven without sacrifice. We're trying to find a short circuit. We're trying to find a way around. We look at sacrifices as the enemy of our soul, when it's in fact the one beneficial thing we need. So the church, in her goodness, as a mother, put this season of Lent before us to heighten that understanding and the need for sacrifice. That's how we have to think. That's how we have to live. And then whenever God gives us these occasions, He puts people around us who annoy us, offer a sacrifice, and then remember that to ask God to forgive you when you were annoying to others. You, you see what I'm saying? This, this is how we look at this book and learn from it the essence of what God demanded of them back then. And for those, and I will repeat this again, for those Jews who were pious, who went and made those offerings, they also received illumination. God was with them, because God is generous. After all, how did Isaiah see God and have a seraphim come and clean him? That's an interior cleaning, an interior cleansing before the coming of Christ. Yeah? So if it happened to Isaiah, it happened to a lot of pious Jews who lived really a, 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 a life pleasing to the Lord. You understand? But on the whole, the system itself was made so that they would realize that in that system there is no salvation. And that come to ask for help. Obviously, no one would expect them to ask for God to send His only Son. And that's, that's completely revealed. But ask for God's help. Where do we see that? Read the book of Tobit. Perfect example. Tobias and Tobit. The father and the son. They're living in exile. They just buried a, 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 a poor Jew 
who was left on the street. And they offered, that's a sacrifice for them. They put their life on the line to do that. And they needed help. God sent the archangel, Raphael, to help them. And to exorcise the wife of Tobias. Christ had not come yet. But here you had a man and his son willing to live a life pleasing to the Lord. That's what this whole system is about. Do you understand? Notice also that God took care of His priests. See, I, I, I am troubled by these um, modern times. The one thing that... Um, now, let me pre- preface this by saying that a good priest told me to choose my battles. And I thought about that because I was asking this one good priest who tends to follow the rubric very, very closely about this business of opening hands and doing Mass. And he told me that the new rubric doesn't mention it. doesn't tell you how the lay should act. It's taken out. But um, the, the, if you really... Um, my understanding is, according to the Code of Canon Law, if, it is not, if, if it's not stated in this modern rubric, then whatever is said in, in the rubric of 1962 stands. And there, it tells you you have to... Anyway, talking to him, he told me, looked at me and said, choose your battles. Meaning we have so many big battles today that this one particular one is not a big deal. We shouldn't be insisting on that. And I thought about this and I pondered this. As I'm pondering this one point here, God gave the skin to the priest. Notice, when the, when the guilt offering was offered, the skin went to the priest. They could trade it, they could sell it, they could make a living out of the skin. Therefore, the priests received a living when the people sacrificed. That's how God structured it. The priests received a living when the people sacrificed. So what did the Catholics do? being more shrewd than the Israelites. They invented bingo. Now, here you go. You might say, you might tell me, now choose your battles. A, a parish has to make money, after all. Right? We need to do something to bring money into a parish. Otherwise, how are we going to be able to live? And therein lies the question that has to be pondered. Therein lies that question that has to be pondered. And in my mind... They're of the same nature, opening your hands in the Mass or working on bringing money to the... It's the same deal. So that's why I don't think it's such a small battle. I think it's really the essential battle. It's one battle. Right? And I don't have an answer, but I do ponder this one. Is it that we live in such modern times that we must run a parish like we run a business? That we have to do all these kinds of activities to bring money in and cover the needs of the... Is that what God had in mind? You see, I do wonder when we start taking these matters into our own hands in this way, if in a fundamental sense we're not pushing faith out slowly. And I'll give you one example before we move on. The Order of Saint Blessed... Teresa of Calcutta. 
She's not been canonized yet, right? No. I'm, I'm just, you know, a little ahead. Blessed Teresa of Calcutta. If my understanding is from someone who was part of the order who told me this. I haven't confirmed it with the, the sisters. I keep on forgetting. If you are, um, you want to help the sisters, so you go the first month and give them 100 bucks. Then you come back the second month and give them 100 bucks. And you come back the third, the third month to so give them 100 bucks, they'll, 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 they'll refuse it. They will not take it from you. Because Mother Teresa wanted to depend on God's providence and only on God's providence. And when we start to structure things too much and we start to take things into our own hands, is it still God's providence or not? When we open our hands and do things which are not according to the rubric, is it still the Mass that God wants? Of course, it's valid, don't get me wrong. But in terms of our, in the essence of what we're trying to do, is that what He wants or not? When we organize bingo or other ways of raising money, the thing that require more business acumen than require faith, the thing that we're more comfortable with, because we know how to do them. Is it what God has in mind? Back then, he didn't tell his priest, okay, if the people don't sacrifice, you can have a bingo night. There was no provision, there was no plan B that God explicitly stated in the law of Leviticus for his priests to live. Only when the people sacrifice Okay, so now what is there for the conclusion? What is the kind of crazy conclusion? Or the faithful conclusion? Here it goes. God's word is one and will never be broken. God is faithful. And God is true. And God is not deceiving. Yes? yes. If you have a priest who trusts in the Lord and believes in Him, Would God abandon that priest? No. no. The Israelites, before they left Egypt, what did the Egyptians do? What did they give them? Gold. Gold. Even your enemy will work for you. That's the way of faith. That's the way of faith. Okay. So, when a priest, going back to the interaction between the priest and the repentant person, when the priest would receive the sacrifice, he would have to acknowledge the reparation, saying, yes, you did what you're supposed to do. Speak words of comfort and assurance. Accept the, the offering of the penitent, administer the reparation, and treat the person as forgiven. He would tell this person, you're forgiven. Exactly like the sacrament of reconciliation. You understand? The guy who just spent a whole calf or a ram or a sheep needs to hear these words. You're forgiven. So these things are not stipulated in the book of Leviticus because it was not meant to be a book of praxis. It's not meant to be a book where the canon of how you're supposed to conduct yourself as a priest, the pastoral 
aspect is recorded. It is a book where God is telling them why they must do something and what they must do, not necessarily how to interact with people because he expected them to do it on their own. All right. Let's continue. Verses 11 to 34. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanks with the thank offering unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers spread with oil, and cakes of fine flowers well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with cakes of leavened bread. And of such he shall offer one cake for each offering, as an offering to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a votive offering or a freewill offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the morrow what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall, he, shall it be credited to him, it shall be an abomination. And he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh. But the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, with an uncleanness is, while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether the uncleanness of a man or an unclean beast or an unclean abomination, and then eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offering, that person shall be cut off from his people. Now, we've talked about sacrifices offered as a way right, of expressing our sorrow, as a way of expressing our uh, compunction, expressing the fact that we have sinned. But there is another offering, no less important, in a sense even more important, is when you offer a sacrifice to say thank you. And... Oftentimes we are, I would say, we need to really examine our conscience and see if we're not even committing almost like a sin by omission because we have forgotten to give God His due. Yeah? Something good happens to you. The good news. You're rejoicing. If in that moment of rejoicing or in that celebration, you didn't go first before the Lord... You didn't recognize the author of the good. You didn't thank him. You didn't offer a piece of that good to him in thanksgiving. What have you done? You understand? What have we done? So all of these things are speaking of our internal attitude towards God. An attitude of filial trust. An attitude of abandonment to God's will. An attitude of complete trust in His providence. That He will not abandon the one who calls on Him. And that's what He wants to see us develop and live by. And all these things, sacrifices for guilt offering, for sin offering, for thanksgiving. He takes it and sort of breaks it down. Not so that He can create a framework. Yeah? And we can create checklists but to make it easy on us to understand the psychology of the 
liturgy. He's making it easy on us to understand what He expects, us, expects from us. You and I know very well that what we desire most for our children is not having to tell them what they have to do. When we can let go, we are happy because this person now has reached that point in their life where they are an adult. Our job, in a sense, is done. It switches to something else. More counseling. More being there and giving maybe wider context, a second pair of eyes. Yeah? We'll still be the parents, don't get me wrong, but it's a different attitude. It's a different relationship that we have with them. And that relationship is what we, this is the summit of all our efforts. But to get there, what do we do? Okay, you want to play a game, you play only for two hours. You want to do this, you do that for this hour. TV you only watch after you're done. Your st- why, do we all, why do we break it this way? Into these small chunks of things they're supposed to do. Why? We do it because they're not yet, they haven't yet understood what it means to be a mature grown-up. They haven't internalized their responsibilities and their sense of sacrifice and a sense of duty and their willingness to be generous and attentive to the needs of others. Some never do. So we break it into smaller chunks. You'll do this, but not that. What is the temptation for the children? To do it all exteriorly. Well, I did everything you told me. Like a good servant talking to his master. And then you think, oh, okay, what am I supposed to do now? They're not getting it. What am I supposed to do? Yeah? If you examine what I just said attentively and in prayer, what do you then realize? What would you immediately realize? You realize that as parents, by definition, by definition, you will fail. Because you don't have what it takes to impart wisdom to your children. In fact, we don't have what it takes to impart wisdom to ourselves. We really think we can teach a kid wisdom? I'm talking about internalizing this. I'm not talking about speaking and talking and communicating. Yeah, we can do all that. But that kid has to be convinced, right? They have to accept what you're saying and make it their own. They have to believe it. Who can make that happen? Yes, God, but who specifically? The Holy Spirit. Ah, you understand? Only the Holy Spirit can touch someone's heart. Nobody else does. The Holy Spirit. Yeah? Okay. Are you praying daily to the Holy Spirit? Are you praying daily to the Holy Spirit to guide you in that mission? To teach you what you're supposed to say? And more importantly... Are you offering sacrifices for your children? Because if you're not offering sacrifices for your children, neither will God, neither will God put in the hearts of your children to be obedient. It's that simple. Parenting, listen, parenting is liturgical. It is a prayer. It is a sacrifice. It is an offering. It is a dialogue with God. Yeah? 
That's what God intends for us to do. So now, when he talks about this Thanksgiving offering, he's kind of reminding them, you still have to say thank you, not just please, you know? What are the two magic words we say? Please and thank you, right? We expect both. You see how God created this Bible called the family? Well, if we expect both, what is he expecting? Please and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So the point is that the culmination of worship and its greatest joy is to enter in the presence of God and celebrate being at peace with Him. It's a celebration. It is to enter into His peace, enter into the kingdom. It is the meaning of Sunday, to be at peace with God. Right? That's what we have to do. But imagine your son or your daughter coming to you and saying thank you to your face and then making fun of you in your back. Is that better or worse than if they have not said thank you? Okay. Now you understand all the requirements around the cleanliness of that sacrifice. Don't come and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving when you behave in a way that shows otherwise. The attention to the details are there to express the inner reality of you really wanting to say thank you. Let me put you in, 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 in terms we understand a little bit better. You're, um, it is your, um, the day you're going to propose to this beautiful uh, woman. Yeah? And... Um, you're, uh, you've worked all day, and let's say you work in, uh, in, uh, as, as a mechanic in a, in a garage, and you head straight from the garage to her parents' house to propose. How do you think she's going to receive you? With open arms? Do you understand now the interior predisposition of the meaning of that sacrifice? Okay. Now, back to what I was saying to you earlier, God told them, you may eat of it on the first day, in some cases on the second, never on the third. Why? They didn't have freezer. True, but they had salt. They had ways to keep things for quite some time. Certainly for three days. They had no problem with that. This is something we really need to be very attentive to. And I know you said it, quipping. <clears throat> but this is not about health. I hope you know that by now. In the book of Leviticus, it's not about, make sure you're not going to catch a virus. Yeah? So why is he telling them, not on the third day? Put it this way. Um, you invite folks over for a wedding. They're there the first day of the wedding, and they are eating. You're happy? Yeah? They stick around the second day, and they eat some more. Is that all right? They say, they, they, then they said to stay the whole week. How are you feeling about that? You get it? That's the intention. Again, it's a thanksgiving. It doesn't take away from your trust in God that He will provide again. That's the key here. He will provide what you need, not necessarily what you want. 
Okay. So again, gratitude is very important, especially, I would say, during the period of Lent. You have to go through Lent with a grateful spirit. At the very least, that God is allowing you to go through Lent. Okay? All right. Let's, let's close with this uh, passage from Hebrew. Letter to the Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 15 through 19. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. What does that mean? The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Pardon? The words. the words. But what does it mean to acknowledge His name? It means that continuously throughout your day, you're acknowledging God's presence, God's action in your life. Yeah? You are attentive to what He's doing as you go through your day. Do not neglect, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Neglect to do good, to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Those are sacrifices of what? Praise. Do good and share what you have. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Those are sacrifices of thanksgiving. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's a sacrifice of praise. For they are keeping watch over your souls as men who will have to give account. He's talking obviously about the hierarchy in the church. Okay? Let them do this joyfully and not sadly, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the joy you impart to your priest will be counted for you. The joy you're giving a priest will be accounted for you. Do you see that? Pray for us, us, priests, bishops, cardinals. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So, God is far more pleased with the sacrifice of thanksgiving than He is with anything else. Now, I'm just going to say this as before we close, because, and I'm going to let you th- think about it. I just want you to think about that. Um, if you are contending with a habitual sin, or if you know somebody who is contending with a habitual sin, yeah. please tell them that the path to healing and restoration goes through the process of them giving praise to God for that habitual sin. Especially when they don't understand that. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? We contend with sin in a very siloed fashion. Here's sin, here's I, I have to conquer. God has a much more strategic view of the whole situation. And He may be using that one particular sin in your life to help fight a much more grievous one that you may not even be aware of. I'll give you an example. Suppose you are... Um, you are um, addicted to broccoli. You go to Vons, you fight with people over broccoli. Somebody tries to buy, buy broccoli, you get upset. Because you're there to buy the whole lot. And you want to keep it for yourself. Okay? When you're in the middle of an addiction such as this one, you, better than anybody else, know how miserable you are. Addicts know very well that they're miserable. Yeah? What they're maybe not seeing is that that addiction to broccoli has caused them to see that they're miserable. Because they see that they're miserable, they're being inoculated against their own pride. Somebody who sees is miserable hasn't much room for pride. You get it? And God had foreseen that if they had not met their match in broccoli, they would become so prideful that they would listen to nothing else. So he put the broccoli on their way to humble them. The problem, pride, surfaces when they have a hard time accepting that they are caught into such a habitual sin. So God will keep them there and let them simmer long enough to learn to trust Him and give Him the praise even while addicted to broccoli. Why? Because when they can do that, when they're at their lowest, addicted to broccoli, imagine what they will do when they're freed from it. Do you understand? It's a hard thing to deal with and contend with as humans because we don't think this way. But God has a much broader view of us and He knows where He's taking us. As long as we believe in Him and trust in Him and thank Him, are mindful of His presence and are willing to do everything we can to get out of that particular predicament, whatever it may be, but also to be able to say, I will accept to stay there as long as you wish me to stay there, but not one day more. And I thank you for everything you've given me. And for everything you've given me that I'm not yet fully able to understand. That is the praise due to God even when we don't understand. Yeah? Because, by the way, all of us will go through the experience on our way to death. All of us will have to contend with the fact that we're losing things and we're abandoning things and we're leaving things behind and it may not be the death we wished for and things may not be exactly going like the movie we had in mind. Yeah? So, this is why we're studying this book because this business of sacrificing is critical and central to our lives. And it is the source of joy. Sacrifice is the source of joy. 
So I'm not saying let's be gloom and doom and just, you know, walk around all miserable and moan and mope. No, it is the source from which joy springs, springs forth. Yeah? All right. So let's um, finish with a word of prayer and then we'll take some questions. Yes. Okay. The question was, well, what happens when your daughter shows up, let's say, with a Muslim? Doesn't mean you just have to say, okay, Lord, whatever you say, you're done. No. That's not what I was implying. My focus wasn't on the fact that you just have to accept and then do nothing, right? That, that, that's completely wrong. My focus was, God puts you before a situation that is incomprehensible. Oftentimes, you have to face situations that don't make sense to you, that you cannot completely understand. And the, temp- the, the, the temptation we might have is, why is God doing that? And almost put ourselves in odd, in, 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 at, at odds with God. The really... The, the right re- reaction would be, okay, what, Lord, what are you telling me? What must I do here? How must I face the situation? So, so the, the example I want to give you is St. Joseph. Gabriel came to Our Lady, and he made the announcement to her and only mentioned Elizabeth. As a result, Our Lady spoke only to Elizabeth, not to Joseph. Now Joseph is faced with a pregnant young woman, and he doesn't understand. So, in his own meditation, he comes to the right conclusion. That's my uh, take, and a take of some of the fathers, uh, which is called the veneration theory. He realizes who Mary truly is, the mother of the Messiah, the one who is to come, and then realizes he's not worthy of her, so he decides to divorce her uh, quietly. Right? And, and in divorcing her quietly, he's taking the blame. Because if he believed that she cheated on him as a righteous man before the law, he must, well, he doesn't have to stone her, but he has to denounce her. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't understand. It's a situation that is incomprehensible to him. And he makes the wrong decision. God lets him stew over it and let him even make the wrong decision. And then he intervenes. That's what I'm trying to say. So, a, um, there's a wonderful movie, if you haven't seen it, really worth watching um, on many different levels, which is called, um, what is it called again? Who's Coming Tonight to Dinner? What? Yes? You've seen this movie, right? Yeah. Well, this young woman is bringing this young man, we're talking 1960s, right? And uh, she wants to introduce her, her parents, and he's black. Right? So the, the, her parents are struggling, and then his parents show up, and they're also struggling on both sides. Yeah? But in this whole movie, there's one line that I thought was beautiful. It's what Sidney Poitier tells his dad. Dad, you think of yourself as a colored man. I think of myself as a man. Right? So... God can surprise you. He can do things you didn't expect. Are you willing to be surprised and not lose your faith in Him? That's, I suppose, what I was trying to to say. But I'm not dictating that every time the answer is, okay, Lord, whatever. That's not at all what I'm saying. Sometimes, as you pointed out, it requires strong, loving medicine that needs to be applied. Exactly. How well you're willing, ready, able to listen and do what God wants you to do. You're always in conversation with God. And therefore, if during your day, 
filled with little struggles, you're in that conversation. Then, when the day comes for your big struggle, death, you'd be willing, ready, and able to meet it. Yeah? Yes. The question is, what if you go to confession, you're not, you're not instead of contrition, you're instead of attrition, which means you're, you're, you're feeling, you're, you're afraid of hell. You're not going to confession because you are sad that you have offended God. You're going there because you don't want to go to hell. Right? Or likewise, when you start praying and somebody wants to pray with you, you really don't feel like praying, but you just mumble along. Is that all right? Absolutely. That's actually really important because God wants us to be honest with Him. He doesn't want us to be wishy-washy. We don't know how to pray. We say, Lord, I don't know how to pray. Guess what we just did? We said a prayer from the heart. We just said a beautiful prayer because it's it's expressing faith that He's hearing us. It's expressing hope that He can answer us. Right? And it's being truthful and humble. What, what God can ask for more? Right? You, it's like your son. Again, always go back to the family. I always go back to the family because it's a Bible. Your son or your daughter comes to you and says, I don't know how to be humble. I'm really struggling with that. You, you throw him out of the door? You, you, you're, you're what? You're, you're really... Un- isn't, isn't your heart rejoicing? Isn't that a wonderful thing if your kid were to say something like that? Well, what God is expecting? No, yeah, you start, start, start where you are, but just don't spurn God. Don't... Kind of push him out and go do your stuff on your own. And only go back to him when, you're, when your foot hurt. Yeah? Yes. So, here's a couple of things that we are certain of. If, so, as Catholics, we should all pray that we may not have a sudden death. Okay? We don't pray for a sudden death. Because, what do you want? You want to receive What? Right? Why do you want to receive the last sacraments? Yeah, but more than that, it's a sacrament. If you receive it, and you're awake, and you're receiving it fully, right? what does it mean? Where are you going? Yeah? Not bad. That's why you, you, want, a, you don't want a sudden death. Okay? That's number one. Number two. Just being, even without going to an infallible teaching, think about the psychology of your enemy, the devil. Does the devil play by the rules? Is he interested in respecting your dignity? What does he wish for? Okay, can he send you to hell? Let's be very clear on that. Let's don't give the devil powers the devil doesn't have. Yeah? Can the devil read your mind? No. no, he cannot. He's a creature. Yeah? If he could read his, your mind, it would be violation of what? Your free will, which God gave you and will never take back. Right? So he cannot read your mind. Mind you, he doesn't need to because we're so predictable. So... Is the devil, fundamentally, is the devil courageous? He's a coward. What do cowards do? Yeah, but when do they attack? When you're weak. When you're weak. When are you the weakest? 
and you're dying. Yeah. When you're dying, your senses are failing. Let's go through the process a little bit. Your senses are failing. You can't see. You can't hear your loved ones. You can't feel somebody holding your hand. You lost all that. Yeah? What do you think he's going to do right then? Okay, attack you. Is he going to come alone? Oh, no. He's going to come with an army, right? But how is he going to attack you? Like what, a bunch of uh, angry dogs? Is that going to come at you? Is that the way to get at you? No. No. Not even cause you despair, but there's not, there's not even need to that. Ah, what, what is the better way to deceive you when you're dying? Send your parents. Send your loved one who passed away that you miss. Of course, think about it. He's a deceiver and he is evil and there is no mercy in him. That is why attachment to those who passed away, undo attachment to those who passed away, if you don't let go of it, yeah, it's an enemy within. How does he do that? Remember, the, 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 the devil can appear as an angel of light. You think he cannot appear as your mom? Of course he can appear as your mom, your dad, your wife. No, he would come with me, come with me. Just keep you busy and not praying. That's all they have to do. We're talking again about somebody who's dying, not receiving the last rites, having not prayed, didn't go to confession. Then where are you going? No, 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 no. If you have the last sacraments, remember, if you have the last sacraments, you may be tempted, but you have what you need. You have now a shield, right? You have shields up, right? Wait, wait, wait. Let me just finish. Wait, wait. Hold on. Hold on. You thought, because I just want to paint the big picture for us to understand this. All he can do, remember, is deceive you. That's all he can do. He doesn't have to cause you to sin. He doesn't have to cause you to despair. He doesn't have to cause you to do any of those things. Remember in Hebrews, do not neglect to do good. All that the devil has to do is is get you to neglect what you're supposed to do. It's enough to get you to hell. What do you have to do? You have to pray. You have to ask God's forgiveness. You have to make an act of mercy. You have to do something, right? If your mother shows up and she's, come with me, I'm taking you to the light. Everything is wonderful. I'm just going to walk with you, hold your hand, take you there, and you're just going with the ride. What is it you haven't done? Not praying. You haven't prayed. Now, you might say, but that's unjust. How come God? Why does God allow to do that? Ah, but see, Jesus made provision for this. He said... In the Gospel of St. John, I am the true shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. What does that mean? How will a sheep, which by the way is really dumb. I used to think chicken are dumb, but actually sheep are dumber than chicken. Okay? How will a sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd? If the sheep is with the shepherd. Yeah? Ah, so if all your life you neglected to pray, if all your life you didn't think about Jesus, 
talked to him, contended with him, learned to recognize his voice, who are you blaming at the moment of your death? See? Now, there's hope though. There's hope. Because we're not Protestant. See? Protestants have this sort of individualistic thing. Me and Jesus, and that's it. No, 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 no. We have the communion of the saints. And the communion of the saints can act independently of us, right? They have free will too, right? So, say you have, along your lineage, a holy grandma who lived a really holy life. And who Jesus loves very, very, very much. And see, and, 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 and assume for a second that this holy grandma, for some reason, likes you. Maybe you're really cute when you were a baby. Minded her of her son or something. I don't know. Making that up. Right? She has a predilection for you. And on the moment of your death, even though you didn't pray, she goes to Jesus, I want this one. Now, you don't deserve to go to heaven, but nobody does. Right? None of us do. You don't deserve to go to heaven. But you in particular, because you didn't pray, you did you let listen, right? Okay. But she comes and she says, I want that one. Please give him to me. And he loves her. Really, really he loves her. And he says, Okay. Because she asked, he floods your heart right there with graces. To recognize his voice. And that effectively happened. The story I'm telling you happened effectively with the mother of a priest. He was a Jew, converted, became Catholic, became a priest. And he's on his way of canonization. But his mother died a Jew and refused the faith. And it was always heavy on his heart. He never said a word. Always heavy on his heart. But one day, a sister sent him a letter on her deathbed and told him, the Lord told me in a prayer that on the moment of her deathbed, he came to your mother And he flooded her heart with such graces that she found him irresistible. She found him irresistible. The best date you can ever have. So then, again, you say the rosary. You pray to Our Lady. You're basically saying, please be... What are you saying to her? Hail Mary. Pray for us now and... Okay. Now if you have Mary with you, one glance of her And the whole horde of hell runs away. They cannot stand her glance, let alone her voice, let alone her presence. Pray for us now and in the moment of our death. Please. Yes, of course. So, um, in the case of mental loss, um, the person is now obviously unable to make any decision. Therefore, that period, they're living it without sin. Right? So, uh, and if there are people praying for them and they receive the last, we have every, hope, every reason to hope. Right? Obviously, we, none of us, and please be careful yeah, to affirm, oh yeah, he's in a better place. Don't ever say that. Unless you're talking about a canonized saint. Okay? Keep on praying. You, this person may be in purgatory, you don't even know that they need your prayers, and you're not praying for them. So, never say, oh, he's in a better place. Just pray, right? But we have good reasons to hope in situations like these. Look, receiving the last rite is not something that happens haphazardly. It is willed by God. Yeah? There is reason of hope. Yeah? Yes? I'm talking about 
Well, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. There is purgatory. But what is purgatory? Straight up to heaven, only a little slower. Yeah? But you're going to heaven. Not bad. Yes. So right now. Look, at the moment of your death, it's really hard to work on avoiding purgatory. It's kind of a little too late. Yeah? So now is the time. And again, if you haven't begun, please go to the website, corbono.com. Click on this prayer, the devotion to our, the three-year devotion, and have at it, and stay, stick with it. Okay? Stick with it. Yes. Okay. A sacrifice in the traditional sense, is a good question, is the destruction of a good offered on behalf of the offer, in place of. So something is completely destroyed, right, to substitute for somebody else. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. He died so we may live. That's a sacrifice. Now, in our case, what God is looking for is mostly the intent. He's not interested in us destroying a chair, a table, or an animal, as much as what is the in, in, inter, interior disposition that we have. And therefore, we offer a sacrifice when we, when we destroy something in us, particularly those things that we are attached to and the vices that hold us back. And when we do it for someone else without looking for a recompense. That's a sacrifice. Yeah? Okay. Uh, all right, last question. Oh, yeah, yeah, good question. Yeah, I'm destroying a vice. So how could that be a good? To me, it is a good. Well, that's subjectively as to the subject. Absolutely. I am addicted to broccoli. Broccoli is a good for me. So if I decide to eat cucumbers instead... And watch somebody eating the broccoli instead of me. It's a huge sacrifice. Well, broccoli is still a good, but you, you get my, the gist of what I'm trying to say. Yeah? Yeah. That's what God is looking for. All right. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www. Thank you and God bless you.